Hello, welcome to Watch Party Lord of the Rings. Today is a very special day. It is Tolkien Reading Day. Our very own holiday here was started by the Tolkien Society in 2003. The purpose of which is to celebrate and promote the life and works of J.R.L. Tolkien by reading favorite passages to each other, to yourselves, to your kids. Today, if you look around online, podcasts, YouTube, uh, you will find tons of cool stuff going on. Lots of live events, live readings. A lot of content creators will be putting out special episodes featuring their favorite written passages from The Lord of the Rings or other parts of the Legendarium. And of course, that's what we're doing here today as well. Now, it's a little bit of a different episode because Jen and I, well, we're never quite together, but we're really not together today because Jen is actually on vacation. But she's very devoted to Tolkien and, of course, to all of you listeners, so she set some time aside to duck into a closet and read and talk about one of her favorite passages. And so we're going to get to that a little bit later, uh, but I just want to thank my friend, Jen, for contributing something today, uh, even though she's supposed to be uh, riding some waves out there in, in Hawaii. Uh, but speaking of friends, today's theme, and every year we get a different theme, today's theme is love and friendship. So we both wanted to focus on some passages that really exemplify those themes. And there's a lot to choose from, because love and friendship is really at the core the Lord of the Rings. I mean, just take the the first part of the trilogy, Fellowship of the Ring. It is all about this fellowship, these different peoples from different races coming together for a common purpose to save all of Middle-earth. And the friendship and devotion that arises through that experience is really at the heart of the story. And if we're talking about the heart of the story, that takes us right to the friendship that I want to focus on, that is truly the core of the entire novel, and that is the relationship between Frodo and Sam. The love and devotion that is shown by Sam is many people's favorite part of the novel, mine included. So the first passage I want to read is shortly after Sam, Frodo, and Gollum have left the Black Gate of Mordor, and they're trying to find another way in, because Gollum says he knows a very secret way. So they're on their way through Athelion. Quote, Gollum disappeared. He was away some time. And Frodo, after a few mouthfuls of Lembus, settled deep into the brown fern and went to sleep. Sam looked at him. The early daylight was only just creeping down into the shadows under the trees, but he saw his master's face very clearly, and his hands, too, lying at rest on the ground beside him. He was reminded suddenly of Frodo as he had lain, asleep in the house of Elrond after his deadly wound. Then, as he had kept watch, Sam had noticed that at times... A light seemed to be shining faintly within. But now the light was ever clearer and stronger. Frodo's face was peaceful. The marks of fear and care had left it. But it looked old, old and beautiful, as if the chiseling of the shaping years was now revealed in many fine lines that had before been hidden, though the identity of the face was not changed. Not that Sam Gamgee had put it that way to himself. He shook his head as if finding words useless and murmured, I love him. He's like that, and sometimes it shines through, somehow. But I love him, whether or no. And I just love that passage because it's such a simple example of love revealed when no one's looking. You know, Gollum's there, there's there's no one to see, Sam's not talking to anyone else, we just get a sneak peek into a private moment, and... Uh, it's not an act of devotion. It's not It's not anything other than Sam looking at his friend who he loves and is devoted to and just thinking to himself how much he does. 
And uh, there are a lot of little moments like that, but that one is one of the most memorable. Now, of course, Frodo and Sam are on their way to Shelob's lair, where, you know, spoiler alert, Frodo gets stung by Shelob, and Sam believes him to be dead. So I want to read a passage there, and this is from the, the Choices of Master Samwise. Quote, Master, dear master, said Sam, and through a long silence waited, listening in vain. Then, as quickly as he could, he cut away the binding cords and laid his head upon Frodo's breast into his mouth, but no stir of life could he find, nor feel the faintest flutter of the heart. Often he chafed his master's hands and feet and touched his brow, but all were cold. Frodo, Mr. Frodo, he called, don't leave me here alone. It's your Sam calling. Don't go where I can't follow. Wake up, Mr. Frodo. Oh, wake up, Frodo, me dear, me dear. Wake up. Then anger surged over him, and he ran about his master's body in a rage, stabbing the air and smiting the stones and shouting challenges. Presently he came back and, bending, looked at Frodo's face, pale beneath him in the dusk. And suddenly he saw that he was in the picture that was revealed to him in the mirror of Galadriel and Lorien, Frodo with a pale face lying fast asleep under a great dark cliff, or fast asleep as he had thought then. He's dead, he said. Not asleep, dead. And as he said it, as if the words had set the venom to its work again, it seemed to him that the hue of the face grew livid green. And then black despair came down on him, and Sam bowed to the ground and drew his gray hood over his head, and night came into his heart, and he knew no more. When at last the blackness passed, Sam looked up and shadows were about him, but for how many minutes or hours the world had gone dragging on he could not tell. He was still in the same place, and still his master lay beside him, dead. The mountains had not crumbled, nor the earth fallen into ruin. I'm always so moved by this because you can see from Sam's reaction, you know, he's going through the, the emotional stages of a shock. Obviously, at first, it's, it's kind of denial here. You know, Frodo, Mr. Frodo, don't leave me alone. Don't go where I can't follow. You know, he's, he's just, he's desperate, desperate for this not to be true. And then he transitions into anger. And I think we've all had these moments where anger kind of overcomes us and it says that he ran about his master's body in a rage, stabbing the air, smiting the stones, and shouting challenges. You know, he's so overcome with anger, but there's no one to fight. There's nothing to do. There's nowhere for him to direct these emotions. So he's just, you know, swinging at the air and, and shouting at the, the sky. Um, and you can really feel the, the helplessness that is described by that sort of act. You know, all of his emotions are totally feckless and pointless because there's nothing he can do with it. All he can do is just be overcome by his anger. Um, and then he returns to Frodo and he's kind of overcome. And it says, you know, a black despair came down on him. So it's, you know, he's, he's desperate, he's in denial, and then anger, and then kind of depression. Um, he's very quickly going through these stages. And I also like here that there's something that kind of mirrors a moment in Moria. So it says where Sam bowed to the ground and drew his gray hood over his head. If we remember that in Moria, when Gimli discovered that Balin was dead, he approached his tomb kind of somberly and slowly, drew his hood over his head, and he didn't say anything, and he just st stood or kneeled at the tomb. And this kind of reminds me of that. You know, Sam is sort of giving into his grief in this moment, um, and just drawing his hood over his head and kind of giving up for a minute. And he knew no more, is what the text says. 
and then he kind of comes out of it. He comes out of that stupor. And I love the last line here that I read, which is he kind of discovers that the world hadn't ended. The mountains had not crumbled, nor the earth fallen into ruin, which, of course, that's a metaphor for how he feels. He, he felt like the world had ended. You know, it's almost a surprise to him. The mountains should have crumbled. The, mountain, the earth should have fallen into ruin because my world has fallen into ruin. Um, so I just I love the uh, literary devices that Tolkien uses here. It's a very short passage, but it, it's very evocative. Now, shortly after, there is another passage. We know in the choices of Master Samwise that once he discovers that Frodo is not, in fact, dead, um, he, he, well, first he decides he's going to take the ring and complete the mission. That's one choice. But then when he discovers that Frodo is not, in fact, dead, he realizes, okay, now I have to go save Frodo. And there's a beautiful passage involving that as well. Quote, His thought turned to the ring, but there was no comfort there, only dread and danger. No sooner had he come in sight of Mount Doom, burning far away, than he was aware of a change in his burden. As it drew near the great furnaces where, in the deeps of time, it had been shaped and forged, the ring's power grew, and it became more fell, untamable save by some mighty will. As Sam stood there, even though the ring was not on him, but hanging by its chain around his neck, he felt himself enlarged, as if he were robed in a huge distorted shadow of himself. A vast and ominous threat halted upon the walls of Mordor. He felt that he had from now on only two choices, to forbear the ring, though it would torment him, or to claim it, and challenge the power that sat in its dark hold beyond the Valley of Shadows. Already the ring tempted him, gnawing at his will and reason. Wild fantasies arose in his mind, and he saw Samwise the Strong, hero of the age, striding with a flaming sword across the darkened land, and armies flocking to his call as he marched to overthrow, th to the overthrow of Veridur. And then all the clouds rolled away, and the white sun shone, and at his command the veil of Gorgoroth became a garden of flowers and trees and brought forth fruit. He had only to put on the ring and claim it for his own, and all this could be. In that hour of trial... It was the love of his master that helped most to hold him firm. But also deep down in him lived still unconquered his plain hobbit sense. He knew in the core of his heart that he was not large enough to bear such a burden, even if such visions were not a mere cheat to betray him. The one small garden of a free gardener was all he, his need and due, not a garden swollen to a realm, his own hands to use, not the hands of others to command. So the reason I picked this little passage, it's all for this one line. In that hour of trial, it was the love of his master that helped most to hold him firm. And I think the importance of this passage is it, the dichotomy of the power of the ring. We see the power of the ring working on him really for the first time in a very direct sense in the novel. Um, you know, Samwise has been supporting Frodo, but now he is having to contend with the ring himself. And its power is starting to work on him. He's close, not only because he's now bearing the ring, but because he's in Mordor and it's growing stronger and it's starting to manipulate him. It's starting to, wild fantasies arose in his mind. He's going to be Samwise the Strong. He's going to, he's going to save the world. Of course, we know as the readers, and Sam recognizes this in just a minute, that, that it's all a cheat. It's all a lie of the ring. But of course, it is, the ring is very, very perilous and dangerous and, and can turn anyone. Even, you know, we saw it corrupt Boromir. It was a very valiant a man of high bloodline from Numenor, and yet it corrupted him. And so that same 
malevolent force is at work on Sam. And yet counteracting that malevolent force that we know now is so strong is the love of his master. And it's love that prevails. And so I think Tolkien is doing this very deliberately. He is pitting the power of the ring against love. And this is uh, sort of a proxy for, I think, the battle that's going on in this story at large. Evil versus good. Uh, corruption versus love. And love really is the counteracting force. And it's just very, very simple. Tolkien's very direct about it. And it just says, in that hour of trial, it was the love of his master that helped most to hold him firm. And I think it, that particular line is simple and not flowery, but very, very powerful because the simplicity of it contrasts with the complexity of the, not co complexity, but the um, extensive way that Tolkien describes the temptation that the ring works upon Sam. So I, I love that dichotomy there, and I think it's very powerful. The last passage I wanted to read is again in the Tower of Kirithungal. It's when Sam rescues Frodo. So immediately before the passage I'm about to read, Sam, who's in the Tower of Kirithungal, he's he hasn't lost hope, but he doesn't know what to do. And so he starts singing songs from the Shire. And so he's been singing those songs, and then we pick up this passage. Quote, Yondal tower strong and high, he began again. And then he stopped short. He thought that he had heard a faint voice answering him, but now he could hear nothing. Yes, he could hear something, but not a voice. Footsteps were approaching. Now a door was being opened quietly in the passage above. The hinges creaked. Sam crouched down listening. The door closed with a dull thud, and then a snarling orc voice rang out. Oh, law, you up there, you dungo rat, stop your squeaking, or I'll come and deal with you. Do you hear? There was no answer. All right, growled Snaga, but I'll come and have a look at you all the same and see what you're up to. The hinges creaked again, and Sam, now peering over the corner of the passage threshold, saw a flicker of light in an open doorway and the dim shape of an orc coming out. He seemed to be carrying a ladder. Suddenly, the answer dawned on Sam. The topmost chamber was reached by a trap door in the roof of the passage. Snaga thrust the ladder upwards, steadied it, and then clambered out of sight. Sam heard a bolt drawn back. Then he heard the hideous voice speaking again. You lie quiet or you'll pay for it. You're not going long to live in peace, I guess. But if you don't want the fun to begin right now, keep your trap shut, see? There's a reminder for you. There was a sound like the crack of a whip. At that, rage blazed in Sam's heart to a sudden fury. He sprang up, ran, and went up the ladder like a cat. His head came out in the middle of the floor of a large round chamber. A red lamp hung from its roof. Then the westward window sill was high and dark. Something was lying on the floor by the wall under the window, but over it a black orc shape was straddled. It raised a whip a second time, but the blow never fell. With a cry, Sam leapt across the floor, sting in hand. The orc wheeled round, but before it could make a move, Sam slashed its whip hand from its arm. Howling with pain and fear, but desperate, the orc charged head down at him. Sam's next blow went wide, and thrown off his balance, he fell backwards, clutching at the orc as it stumbled over him. Before he could scramble up, he heard a cry and a thud. The orc in its wild haste had tripped on the ladder head and fallen through the open trapdoor. Sam gave no more thought to it. He ran to the figure huddled on the floor. It was Frodo. 
He was naked, lying as if in a swoon on a heap of filthy rags. His arm was flung up, shielding his head, and across his side there ran an ugly whip-wheel. "'Frodo, Mr. Frodo, my dear!' cried Sam, tears almost blinding him. "'It's Sam. I've come!' He half-lifted his master and hugged him to his breast. Frodo opened his eyes. "'Am, am I still dreaming?' he muttered. "'But the other dreams were horrible.' "'You're not dreaming at all, mister,' said Sam. "'It's real. It's me. I've come.' "'I can hardly believe it,' said Frodo, clutching him. "'There was an orc with a whip, and then it turns into Sam.' "'Then I wasn't dreaming after all when I heard that singing down below. "'I tried to answer. Was it you?' "'It was indeed, Mr. Frodo. I give it up hope almost. I couldn't find you.' "'Well, you have now, Sam, dear Sam,' said Frodo. And he lay back in Sam's gentle arms, closing his eyes like a child at rest when night fears are driven away by some loved voice or hand. Sam felt he could sit like that in endless happiness, but it was not allowed. It was not enough for him to find his master. He had still to try and save him. He kissed Frodo's forehead. "'Come, wake up, Mr. Frodo,' he said, trying to sound as cheerful as he had when he drew back the curtains at Bag End on a summer's morning. So we'll stop there, and I just I just love that. I gave you sort of an extended intro part, you know, a little bit of the battle scene just because it sets the stage, but really the, the core of that scene is, you know, when Sam saves Frodo and just the, the tenderness of their reunion. You know, Frodo's, I mean, he's been tortured, you know, he's been waterboarded. This is, you know, he's in Guantanamo. <laughs> he's been through some really horrible experiences here, and he's exhausted. He's, you know, mentally and physically exhausted. Uh, not just from the orcs, but also, you know, from the burden of, you know, he's got the poison of Shiloh burning through his veins, the burden of carrying the ring for all that time. It's all worked up on him, and he's totally overwhelmed. And so Sam saves him, and, you know, Frodo had been his master and the leader, but in this moment he is totally uh, in Sam's power. And and it says, it compares him to a child at rest when night fears are driven away by some loved voice or hand. And uh, as a new father, you know, that line has new meaning for me because, you know, you can imagine what that's like, but, um, you know, when you have a, a child who um, desperately needs you to comfort them after a bad dream or something like that, it um, it really is a, a, a special feeling. Um, you know, it, it wrenches your heart as a parent when your child is in pain, um, even a simple pain like having a bad dream. It's, you know... <laughs> They're fine, you know they're fine, but it hurts you for them to be in pain like that and to be scared and, and to be afraid. And so, um, and then you're there and they are totally comforted. You know, you make them feel better just by being there. And um, it's a really powerful uh, feeling that I get when I read this now because that's what's happening with, with Sam and Frodo. You know, Frodo is overcome and in Sam's arms, he is finally for a moment. Um, safe and we see it from both sides you know we see how Frodo feels being with Sam and then we see how Sam feels you know he says Sam felt that he could sit like that in endless happiness you know in the middle of Mordor really hell on earth they're having this moment of heaven the reunion finally being together not truly safe but feeling safe because they're together Um, it's it's a really beautiful moment of, of happiness and it's all just because of their love for each other So those are some of my favorite passages between Frodo and Sam. I hope you find and read some of your favorite passages today. 
we're going to turn it over now to Jen from Hawaii to read one of her favorite passages. Aloha from Maui, Hawaii. This is Jen coming at you. I'm recording um, on vacation, and I wanted to just say a few brief words on this Tolkien Reading Day. Happy Tolkien Reading Day to everybody out there. Um, And I am going to just talk briefly about um, a story from the Unfinished Tales called Kyrian and Eorl. It might be Syrian, so forgive the pronunciation. I like saying Kyrian better. I think it sounds better. And Eorl. So this story from the Unfinished Tales is about the alliance that was formed an alliance early on between Gondor and um, Rohan, but these were, this was before even it was called Rohan, these were the writers of Rohan, uh, Northmen, descendants of the Dúnedain. So um, in the time of Kyrian the steward of Gondor, there was an assault uh, brewing against Gondor by orcs and men out of the east, And essentially, um, Gondor called for aid. The story starts out talking a lot about um, the beacons, uh, if people are interested in hearing about the beacons, uh, more about the beacons. That's how this story begins. Um, But basically, uh, the the steward of Gondor sends sends writers to Eorl, son of Leod, um, to call for help. And to their great peril, they decide to to answer the call to set out. Um, and it's really similar to the story that we see play out uh, later on in The Lord of the Rings, um, where they they ride out and they basically save Gondor. Um, and they become friends. They become close friends. And um, I'm going to read some passages from this story uh, that I think are relevant and then talk about why I chose this. Um, so this is after um, the war is over and everyone is thinking that Kyrian is going to reward Eorl for coming to Gondor's aid by throwing him a banquet or doing something doing something um, lavish for him. Um, so he spends a lot of time thinking about what he will do and then he summons um, Eorl to a sacred meeting place, um, and I'm going to read from there. Then Kyrian led Eorl into the trees, and the others followed in order. And after they had passed the first of the inner stones, their voices were stilled, and they walked warily as if unwilling to make any sound. So they came at last to the upper slopes of the hill and passed through a belt of white birches and saw the stone stair going up the summit. After the shadow of the wood, the sun seemed hot and bright, for it was the month of Urume. Yet the crown of the hill was green, as if the year were still in Notese. So I'm going to skip a little bit because they they talk about the meeting place. But actually, this is the meeting place, is a sacred um, site of Elendil's grave. So we discover discover that Elendil's grave exists, and um, they're going to swear oaths to each other at this grave site. Okay, so this is Kyrian speaking. I will now declare what I have resolved with the authority of the stewards of the king to offer that Eorl, son of Liad, lord of the Eothid, in recognition of the valor of his people and of the help beyond hope that he brought to Gondor in the time of dire need, to Eorl I will give in gift 
free all the great land of Kalinardhan from Anduin to Ivan. Kalinardhan, sorry. There, if he will, he shall be king, and his heirs after him, and his people shall dwell in freedom while the authority of the stewards endures, until the great king returns. No bond shall be laid upon them other than their own laws and wills, save in this only. They shall live in perpetual friendship with Gondor, and his enemies shall be their enemies, while both realms endure. But the same bond shall be laid also on the people of Gondor. Then Eril stood up, but remained for some time silent, for he was amazed by the great generosity of the gift and the noble terms in which it had been offered. And he saw the wisdom of Kyrian both on his own behalf as ruler of Gondor, seeking to protect what remained of his realm, and as a friend of the Eosir, of whose needs he was aware. For they were now grown to a people too numerous for their land in the north, and longed to return south to their former home. But they were restrained by the fear of Dolgodur. But in Kalinardon they would have room beyond hope, and yet be far from the shadow of Morkwood. Yet beyond wisdom and policy, both Kyrian and Eero were moved at that time by the great friendship that bound their peoples together, and by the love that was between them as true men. On the part of Kyrian, the love was that of a wise father, old in the cares of the world, for a son in the strength and the hope of his youth. While in Kyrian, Eero saw the highest and noblest man of the world that he knew, and the wisest on whom sat the majesty of the kings of men long ago. At last, when Eero had swiftly passed all these things through his thoughts, he spoke, saying, Lord Steward of the Great King, the gift that you offer I accept for myself and for my people. It far exceeds any reward that our deeds could have earned, if they had not themselves been a free gift of friendship. But now I will seal that friendship with an oath that shall not be forgotten. So I'm going to skip ahead to the oath that he swears. Hear now all peoples who bow not to the shadow in the east, by the gift of the Lord of the Munberg, we will come to dwell in the land that he names Kelenardhan, and therefore I vow in my own name and on behalf of the Eothead of the North, that between us and the great people of the West there shall be friendship forever. Their enemies shall be our enemies, their need shall be our need, and whatsoever evil or threat or assault may come upon them, we will aid them to the utmost end of our strength." This vow shall descend to my heirs, all such as may come after me in our new land, and let them keep it in faith unbroken, lest the shadow fall upon them and they become accursed. So this, the narrative goes on and they, um, they break bread together. They determine the boundaries of the land that was gifted to uh, the people, the Northmen, and it's just a, a really beautiful short story, and I'm thinking a lot right now about alliances and, of course, love and friendship, but about alliances. Um, in the wake of this war in Ukraine, I'm thinking about um, not just country-swearing alliances, but people and individuals and how we can connect and come to each other's aid in um, times of war and times of strife. And I encourage people to, to meditate on this. And I'm definitely doing a lot of soul searching and um, looking for ways to meet this historic moment and meet it with the gravity of the situation and 
I'm thinking of the people of Ukraine, and um, I'm I am declaring on this podcast that you know we are against this war. We're standing with the people of Ukraine, and um, we hope that there will be a Western alliance. And those are kind of the things I'm thinking about today on this Tolkien reading day. Thanks for listening. Before we close today, I just want to remind you and encourage you. Again, this is Tolkien Reading Day, so go read. I know it's tempting to, you know, listen to your podcast while you're going for a run or, or whatever you're doing, you know, watching YouTube. Um, I do that all the time, too. There's tons of great content out there. And, of course, I encourage you to support all those Tolkien content creators as much as you can. But today is about the books and reading. You know, Tolkien was a writer, and the written word has a certain power all its own. And so force yourself to sit down, you know, get a nice cup of coffee or something and, uh, you know, read a few pages from the Lord of the Rings, any part of the Legendarium that you really love, because there's nothing quite like reading the books. Before we go, I want to share a little anecdote with you. You know, in the spirit of Tolkien Reading Day, part of what I think it's about is sharing Tolkien with others by reading the story to them or sharing the story. And I've heard a lot of people say that one of their favorite experiences with Tolkien is reading it to somebody else. Um, and I've never really done that. My wife's not into Lord of the Rings. Um, I've had friends that I talk to about Lord of the Rings, but we never read it together. So I've never really read it to anyone, certainly not to share it with somebody. But now I have a daughter. She's a little over two years old. And so I definitely imagine I will be reading the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit to her in the near future. Um, she's not quite ready for me to read that story to her yet, but I did something that in a lot of ways felt even better. Um, I read it to her in the oral tradition. Uh, we were out for a walk the other day and while walking, you know, we were looking at, okay, there's birds. We hear an owl hooting, you know, there's the signs. We're just doing all the normal stuff. I'm sort of narrating everything that I see and we're chatting. And I said, do you want to hear a story? And she says, sure, because she's two years old. So she's very agreeable right now. And and so I start telling her the story of of Bilbo Baggins. And I start reciting The Hobbit from memory. Now, of course, not word for word. I certainly don't remember it word for word, but as best as I could. And it was so much fun because, A, I never really tried to tell the story of The Hobbit from memory. And I really was trying to go into as much detail as I could. To the extent that I could remember every scene, I was, I was trying to recount it for her. But then, of course, also I had to adapt it a little bit. Not just because I couldn't remember it word for word, but also because, hey, I'm talking to a two-year-old here. And, and so let me, you know, I, I kind of tweaked it here and tweaked it there um, to make sure she was paying attention and so that she would catch it. Now, of course, you know, I did this for a couple of minutes and I thought, all right, this is this is mostly for me, this <laughs> mostly for my benefit. Uh, you know, she's a two-year-old. She's going to get distracted and uh, she won't care. Um, and sure enough, you know, after five minutes or so, something else caught our attention. You know, we get to the park or whatever it was. Um but to my surprise and great joy, a little bit later, maybe 10 minutes later, we were walking some more and she said, well, she started saying something to me and I couldn't quite understand her because she's talking really well, but sometimes she, you know, when she's using new words that are unfamiliar to her, I can't always make them out. And so I have to, it takes me a little while to figure out what she's saying. You know, any parent of a young child knows you kind of get pretty good at, at deciphering your kid's speech um you know no one else can understand what they're saying but you can make it out but when they start using new words you, you can't always make it out 
And so she was getting a little frustrated because she was trying to say something to me that I wasn't quite getting at first. But when I pieced it together, I was so happy because what she was saying was that she wanted more Bilbo story. <laughs> she said, more Bilbo story. And so I was very happy to oblige. And so um, we had a, probably about three rounds of me you know, telling uh, portions of The Hobbit on that walk. We went for a nice like long 30-minute walk, and I got to probably tell her the uh, story of The Hobbit for about 15 minutes collectively. And she would just listen and rapt attention for, for a good five-minute stretches. And uh, so that was a lot of fun. And the next day when we went out for a hike, lo and behold, and I didn't prompt her, I swear, this is, I'm not prompting her. <laughs> she said, you know, more Hobbit story. And this time she used Hobbit story, not Bilbo story. So she used a different word. And I was amazed because it, it meant, you know, she had some recall. She, she remembered what we had talked about. And so, you know, the first night she said more Bilbo story. And this time she said Hobbit story. And um, so I think you can imagine how pleased I am that that story got her attention and she was really enjoying listening to it. And I can't tell you how fun it was for me to kind of convey the story in the oral tradition. It was like I was re-experiencing it in a different way. And uh, I encourage all of you to try and do that. If you ever get an opportunity, if any of you have little kids, you know, try just telling the story from memory and see where it gets you. And you can switch it up a little bit, you know, compress it, abridge it, however you want to do it, because that's part of the fun too. You know, you're making the story your own. And it's a little bit of adaptation. We always like to say on this podcast, we talk about Tolkien through the lens of adaptation. Well, if you try and tell that story from memory, you're going to be doing a little bit of creative adapting for that purpose. And it, uh, it, it's a great way to re-inhabit that story. Well, that's going to do it for today. I hope you're all having a wonderful Tolkien reading day. If you appreciated this episode and you like what we're doing here, please do remember to go like and subscribe. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts. That really helps us out. We'll be back next week with another episode on Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. Uh, we're being joined by Luke Shelton, wonderful guest. We had a great time, and so we can't wait for you to hear that episode. So until next time, keep reading, and may the hair on your toes never fall out.